uh, speaking tonight. Chris was an RUF campus minister for six years at App State. Go Nears. Go Nears. Um, and uh, <laughs> and he's, he moved to Winston-Salem in May and is now a pastor at Redeemer, Presbyterian Church here in town. And um, it's just a real privilege to have him here with us. He's a good friend. And um, I think I'm really excited to have you here to share with us. Thanks, man. So, appreciate you. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. We are cute. <laughs> We're cute. Um, it's really good to be with you all, and um, yeah, go Deeks. I've always wanted to say that in a group of people that had any idea what go Deeks means. Um, and uh, yeah, it's great to be here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand right here. Um, and yeah, so I just recently left doing RUF, so this is actually really emotional for me. So um, I appreciate y'all allowing me to be in that space and be in my emotional feels right now about um, leaving RUF. I, uh, who in here is a sophomore? There we go, sophomores forever. Sophomores are my favorite class, always. Um, and uh, when I was a sophomore in college, uh, a friend of mine invited me to go to RUF with them. And uh, I didn't go to church or anything like that or know, read the Bible or know about Jesus at all. And uh, it was there that I came to know Jesus and to follow him and to have a new life in him. And so um, if that's you tonight, you're kind of here and you're like, I don't really know why I'm here. I'm really glad that you're here and I know how you feel. So, um, yeah, we're going to be in John 21. So I think we have a handout. It's on the screen. If you have an old fashioned Bible, you can turn in there, too. Um, It's Matthew, Mark, Luke and John in the the New Testament. And. John told me that y'all have been uh, looking at questions that God asks in the Bible. And I love that because um, I tend to be pretty cynical when I open up the Bible or I think about God. Uh, It's really easy for me to get to a cynical place um, and make my assumptions about who God is and how he operates and what the Bible says and what it says about us and all that. And um, even as a minister, I tend to be pretty cynical. And, um, and then I find these questions that God is asking people. And it's really funny because God doesn't need to ask anybody anything because he already knows. But the reality is that he is curious. And he asks questions because he wants to engage us and because he wants to invite us in. And he wants to come after us. And he cares about what we would have to say to his question. And that kind of resets my cynicism completely. What do I do with a God that knows everything and can do anything that he wants? And yet he comes to people and, and, and says, do, do you love me? Or um, ask the simple question. And uh, so um, I'm excited to, to dive into this with you. Uh, I'm going to read it and uh, then pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Uh, this, is a, this is a story, by the way, that is about failure. And um, yeah, this is a story about failure. John writes this in John chapter 21. Uh, This is the word of the living God. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. At this point, Jesus, by the way, has lived and done all this ministry and he's died on the cross and was buried. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And so it's pretty, pretty startling. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin. I'm going to move this. 
Oh, but I taped it in like a dummy. Okay, I'm gonna move it right here. That works. All right. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They are fishermen by trade. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the outer garment or dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many of them, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. All right, pause. If you died and came back from the dead, and then, like, you saw some of your buddies. I just, like, says something that Jesus is like, and I'm going to make you guys some breakfast. You know? I've been fishing. And it's hard out there. I have a glorified body and, like, can walk through doors that are locked. But I want to make you some breakfast and make sure that you're taken care of. I don't know if that would be my priorities, you know, but those were his. Okay. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and said with the fish, This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, this is the part we're going to focus on. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, these other disciples? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is God's word. I'm going to ask him to bless it for us. Um, Lord, I thank you for the women and men gathered here tonight. Or they could have been in a lot of places and they've chosen to be here. And Lord, we're all here in one way or the other because we want to hear something that is real. We want to hear a word from you, a way for you to show us who you are. And uh, Lord, we know that you can, um, you can grant that, that you can speak to us by your spirit. Lord, you made everybody in here and you know all of us. You know every single part about us and you know how to speak to us in a way that we can understand. And Lord, I can't do that. I can't, I can't say things about you, even from your word, that, that will connect. But you can do that. And Jesus, you have the words of life. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak them to us now. That by believing in your name, Jesus, we would have life. And we pray in your name. Amen. Okay, so I grew up um, with a single mom. I was the only child. 
And um, it were some lean years, especially at the beginning um, with me and my mom. She worked, she was such a hardworking person. She worked multiple jobs. And um, when I was in like fourth grade, I wanted to go as a character from a video game called Street Fighter. Um, and uh, his character's name was Ryu. And Ryu didn't wear shoes. I had this cool like white, like kind of Taekwondo looking thing and like red headband. And uh, he didn't wear shoes. And, but I had to wear shoes because you have to wear shoes out in the world. And um, I said, Mom, can I wear these moccasins that you have? And she said, no. And I was like, why not? They seem cool. They kind of look like you're not even wearing shoes, you know? And um, well, let's ignore the appropriated parts about moccasins. And it was the 80s, okay? And, um, and uh, I was like, why, why not? And she said, well, I, 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 these are really special to me. I got these at a special time in my life, and I have a lot of memories associated with them, and I just don't want anything to happen to them. So I was like, okay, fine. So then she went to work, and it was Halloween. And I was going out trick-or-treating and everything. Again, it was the 80s. And um, parents go to work, and you go trick-or-treating. That's just what you did. And, um, and while she was gone, I got her moccasins, and I wore them out to go trick-or-treating. Because I was like, what? It's fine. And I was somehow playing under a bridge with some other kids, and we found a can of spray paint, and I kicked this can of spray paint. And it, this can of spray paint exploded onto the moccasins, and thereby destroyed my mom's moccasins. Now, this was not just an act of disobedience by a child. It was actually, if you think about it, a betrayal of my mom. Because she had said, I had asked her and she had said no. And furthermore, she had given me some of her story to help me understand why these things were precious to her. Um, it was a betrayal of her trust and it was me not caring at all about her story or about her struggle. And just really just kind of wanting to get what it was that I, was, that I wanted. And it was a destruction of these moccasins that could never be put back together. There was no fixing them. There was no cleaning them. They were destroyed. And when we fail in a way that is significant, that is what it feels like for us. It feels like a betrayal. It feels like a, just a lack of appreciation for someone's struggle. And it feels like something that can't be put back together again. And the question that all of us have to ask at some point is when we get to that point and we have failed to such an extent that it feels like nothing can be put back together, how do we come back from it? Is there a path back to wholeness? Now, this guy in the story, Peter, he was one of Jesus' best friends. Jesus had 12 friends that he was really close with called his disciples. And among those, he had three really close friends, Peter, James, and John. They were part of his inner circle. And the thing about Peter... You may know some, somebody that's really overly confident. Peter was that guy. This one time, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, you know, they're going to kill me, and all of you are going to run away. They're going to strike the shepherd, and you're all going to abandon me. And Peter's like, even if all these suckers, these other 11 people that are lame, leave you, I will not leave you. Even if they all run away, I'll be the one that stays. And Jesus is like, well, actually, you're not. Um, you're gonna actually going to betray me. You're going to deny me. And he, Peter says, even if I have to die, I will never deny you. I will never betray you. And he would remain loyal to him. And as Jesus in, in John 18 is being tried for a crime that he didn't commit, and he is being, he is being condemned to murder in the, like, the most 
unjust legal hearing that has ever happened. Or someone who's literally never done anything but love God and love his neighbor completely with his entire life is being put on trial and being condemned to death. Um, Peter is there. And he's standing around this charcoal fire. Um, it's, a, it's a chilly night. And he's standing around, John says, he's standing around a charcoal fire warming himself. And people start asking him. First, a little girl says, hey, 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 that guy that's up there, you're like his friend, right? And like to a little girl, Peter's like, nah, man. I don't know what you're talking about. And two more times he is asked, hey, this is your friend, right? This is, now you got to think, Jesus is, is being falsely accused and uh, there's a, being a huge miscarriage of justice. If there was ever a time when Jesus needed an advocate, it was that moment. For someone to say, it's not true. He didn't do any of these things that you're saying that he did. But he doesn't only not advocate for Jesus, he denies him. And the third time that he denies Jesus, John says that, that, that Jesus looks out at Peter across this charcoal fire where he's warming himself. He looks at him and Peter is just, you can just imagine how crushed he is. He was the one that said, if everybody leaves you, I will stay. I will advocate for you. I will die for you. And he's failed Jesus. And what Peter's story shows us tonight and the way that Jesus interacts with him is two things. And these are the two things that I want you to walk away knowing about God and about your failure. There are two opportunities that God has for us in our failure. And the first is this. When you fail... And you don't just run away from it. You don't just act like it didn't exist. You don't just explain it away. But when you fail and you actually deal with that failure, you can begin to believe that God actually loves you. That God's love is real. That he actually loves you where you are. Look, look at on your sheet in the passage down there at the bottom. Jesus is sitting around this charcoal fire, another charcoal fire, with his disciples. And they all know what's happened. And Jesus hasn't brought it up. And as they're sitting there, you can imagine they're all sitting around this fire eating you know, fish for breakfast, which sounds amazing, actually. So I imagine if I, if I like went on vacation to Spain, you know, like that's like something you would do, maybe. I know nothing about Spanish culture, um, <laughs> except for that they love seafood and, this, they, and they sound like they have a good time. And it's fun to eat fish for breakfast, potentially. And, uh, and, and Jesus begins speaking to, to Peter, and, and he says, Simon, which is Peter's other name. Everybody in the Bible has like at least two to three names, by the way. It's really confusing. Um, and he says, Simon, do you love me? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you know I love you. He's like, feed my sheep. Simon, do you love me? He's like, Lord, you know I love you. He says, feed my sheep. And then he says to him a third time, Simon, do you love me? And John says that Peter was grieved by this. Jesus, in front of Peter's best friends takes Peter to that place of acknowledging between the two of them and everybody else exactly what Peter has done. You denied me three times. Now I'm asking you three times in a row, do you love me? And I imagine the other disciples, they're kind of just like staring into the fire, you know, like not making eye contact with like anyone around them. Just like, hmm, fish, good, fish, good, you know. And Peter kind of like looking, you know, like just playing with the sand beneath, you know, between his legs and just crying, you know, looking down. And, Pete, and Jesus looking straight across this fire at him again. At the person that betrayed him. 
But notice what Jesus doesn't say to Peter. He doesn't say, hey, look, you messed up, but it's fine. You know, like it's not a big deal. Like we all screw up, man. It was just a bad day. Don't worry about it. No, since Jesus actually loves Peter and actually likes Peter and actually cares about Peter and cares about their relationship, of course he can't just say it wasn't a big deal. It hurt him deeply. It was a betrayal. God is a person. And how we love him or refuse to love him makes an actual impact on him. He's not just a force that says, here's how you live and here's how you don't live. And the bad ones, if you don't live the right way, I squash you. And if you live the right way, I'll raise you up. But he says, how you live and what you think and feel and do matters to me deeply because I love you. It's deadly serious to God. And Jesus has been betrayed by a friend. God actually cares a lot more about what we think and feel and do than we could ever possibly be comfortable with. And that's because he's good and because he's real. But he also doesn't say, Simon, do you know that I love you? Simon, do you know that I love you? Simon, do you know that? That's that's, that's what we think that he would say, right? Like, he just needs to hear again that I love him and, and, and it'll be better. And the reason why he doesn't say, Simon, do you know that I love you? Is because absolutely nothing about Jesus changed from the moment he met Peter to the moment of Peter's betrayal to the moment that they're sitting across this fire on the beach after Jesus' resurrection. Absolutely nothing about Jesus' affection and love and, and desire to be close to Peter has changed at all. In fact, he couldn't. God is, is unchanging and unchangeable. He's not able to change. And so when God sets his love and affection on somebody, there's no ever taking that away or no ever diminishing that. Once God sets his affection on someone, it's never going anywhere. And actually the work that Jesus had just done in the story before this, the, the, the act of willingly going to the cross and dying for things that he didn't do was an act of his love for Peter. He said, you're a mess. You've screwed up completely. I'm perfect. I'm going to step into that place. I'm going to allow myself to die for you. That's the ultimate proof that even when Peter was at his worst, that Jesus loved him with everything in him, enough to die for him because his love is perfect. And Jesus brings Peter back to this deep failure and says, do you love me? And what he's really saying is, Even in light of your own failure, do you love me? Are you willing to still say that you love me? Not because I have betrayed you, but because you have betrayed me. Are you going to let your failure... Hey now. Didn't like that. Didn't like that at all. I I was getting going there, John. It just sounds very echoey, you know? All right. <clears throat> he, 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 he wants to walk him into that. In some ways, it feels a little bit cruel for him to walk Peter into that, right? In front of everybody and go to that place. But really what he's saying to him is, can you, with your failure, now that you can't justify what happened, you can't explain it away, you can't say that you ate something bad that day, in light of your failure, will you still love me? Or are you going to let your failure keep you? From my love. Because that's where I am a lot of the time. I'm not worried that God doesn't love me. 
I'm worried about all the crap that I've done and whether I can still go to God with a straight face. Um, when I was an RUF intern, so shout out to RUF interns in the room. I see you, Dakota and Emily and Matt. Um, I had a student, his name was Patrick. And Patrick started reading the Bible. And he was reading this part of the Bible in the book of Romans, uh, in the 8th chapter. And in Romans chapter 8, there's this, this part about how neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor powers, there's nothing that ever existed in heaven or on earth that could ever separate God's people from his love. That nothing, nothing can ever take God's love away from his people. And we're sitting there on campus having lunch, and he starts crying. And I was like, what, what's going on? He said, I realized when I read that, that if nothing can separate me from God's love, that means that I can't separate me from God's love. Nothing that I've done can make God love me any less or take me away from him. If he wants me, he will have me. Nothing, not even me. And the same is true of you, of you tonight. That there is nothing that you have done or can do, or ever will do, that could ever possibly separate you from the love of God if you are in Jesus. And it's actually through the acknowledgement of your failure. I I sense that Wake Forest is not a place that we like to celebrate our failures. Can I I get an amen on that? Thank you. Um, At Appalachian, I would say, it's a place we love to celebrate our failures. Um, It's like... It's like the way to lose social capital at Appalachian is to act like you have your like, life together, you know? Everyone's like, man, you don't have your life together. Like, why are you, why are you wearing shoes? Stop wearing shoes. Okay. Um, why are you trying to act like you have nice shoes? Okay? You don't need shoes. It's like 10 degrees outside. It's fine. But it's actually through the acknowledgement of your failure that you can actually begin to grasp what is maybe the most beautiful and confounding reality in all of the universe, which is that God loves you. That he actually wants to be with you. That the way, the thing that God has done to move heaven and earth, his own death and resurrection was so that he could be close to you. Because he loves you and wants to be around you. God actually loves you. And are you allowing your inconsistencies or your doubts or your failures to disqualify you from drawing close to Jesus? Are you taking yourself so seriously that you can't take Jesus seriously? I have a deep spiritual connection with Elsa of Arendelle. And um, I, is my contention that Elsa may be the most compelling character of the 21st century, but we can have that conversation later if you want to. Mostly because I would love to have that conversation because nobody else wants to have this conversation with me. And, um, but Elsa, and this is going to ruin the plot line for Frozen, but it's been a minute since it came out. So... Um, <laughs> But Elsa, you know, she has this power um, to be able to turn, to turn things into ice, right? And, um, and this power is something that she can't control. So she tries, at first, being really good and avoiding failure at all costs to keep her destruction and protect herself and everyone around her from her destruction. So she tries to conceal, don't feel, right? Put on a show. Okay. Make one wrong move and everyone will know. I know the whole movie, y'all. We can do this all night. Okay. Um, I also have three three little kids, so that doesn't hurt. Um, so by, she tries to, uh, to avoid failure at all costs, but then when that doesn't work, when it actually starts hurting people around her anyway, she just embraces it, right? She lets it go. She allows her destructive power to just let itself flourish, and she says, this is who I am now. 
I can't control it, so I'm just going to embrace it. But neither of those paths bring healing to her life. It's only the recognition that her sister, Anna, who she has hurt deeply, who she has isolated herself from, and who she has brought pain onto, loves her enough to forgive her and to give herself for her anyway. That's what made her free. Not saying, I'll avoid failure, I'll just embrace failure, this is who I am, but recognizing I am forgiven and loved anyway. And it doesn't just make her powers go away, it actually makes her powers this beautiful, life-giving thing that she can control and bless the people around her. And you may think, and, I, and I, if this is where you're at, I love that this is where you're at and that you're in this space, but you may think that God is completely irrelevant. That like, this is fine, it sounds okay or it sounds lame, but, you know, whether God loves you or not is irrelevant. And the reality is that most of y'all, when you get done here, there will be doors open for you. And pretty much everything that you ever could have wanted, you will be able to get. You will have access to those things. Whether you acknowledge God or not, it probably won't make a significant impact on what you're able to do with your life. Uh, You know, you're getting a top flight education. There'll be a lot of doors open for you. But if you choose to continue your life without knowing the love of Jesus, what you're doing is you're choosing to ignore a love that is pure. And a love that is deeply powerful, actually the most powerful force in the universe. The most powerful love that a person could ever could experience. Because in the love of Jesus, you have the most complete love that's able to go all the way down to your deepest, most shameful places. And God's like, I was already there. I've seen it all. And I'm not just forgiving you. I'm smiling at you. I just want you to be with me. Lift your head to my face and see my smile. Is what God is saying to us in Jesus. I think you're so lovely. Come follow me. If a romantic partner offered you a love like that, it says, I know all your stuff and there's nothing you could ever do and I'll always delight in you and I'll always love you. You would be like kind of dumb to not at least like go on a date with them, right? Um, they sound like, sort of like a sociopath, so this is, this is a little bit confusing. It's kind of over, over-promising. But even though they could never do that, Jesus can and does actually love you. And he offers that full love to you now. He's inviting you into full forgiveness and new life. And you should, I mean, at least talk to John or Ellis about that. And, and the second thing, and we'll, we'll end on this. God gives us an opportunity in our failure to recognize that he actually loves us. The, the second thing is this, and we'll, we'll end here is that in our failure, God actually allows us to become qualified to share his love with other people. It's actually only if you're able to look at your failure and own it for what it is that God says, now you are certified to share my love with other people. Every time after Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, he says, feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. And what he's doing in each of those answers When Peter says, yes, I love you, he says, feed my sheep. He's saying, I want you to take care of my beloved ones. Jesus is the shepherd and we're the sheep. He says, I want to restore you to good work. 
where you can actually go and tell other people about my love, love work. And he actually used Peter's wound of failure to drive that work. Had Peter not arrived in this place, he would not have been qualified to tell the world about Jesus's love. And to end, um, how are you expecting God to heal you? Everybody in this room is, is wounded deeply. Um, both from what we've done and from things that have happened to us. How are you expecting God to heal those wounds? I mean, generally, it's like if we fail and we have a wound from it, then we hope and expect that God will give us a success. And then that success will make up for the wound. Or if we've been hurt in a relationship, we expect that God will bring a new and a better relationship. And it'll make up for that old one. And it'll just act like it wasn't there. And yet, I pray and hope for successes and pray and hope for good and beautiful relationships. And hopefully he'll do that. But Jesus is actually powerful enough and wise enough and good enough to use your wound to qualify you to love others the way that God loves us. Um, I I grew up without a father. And um, it, it wasn't like he died or it was just, he was just not interested. And um, that is, that's a wound. Okay? Like you can get together with, you know, guys and get together with other bros and be like, oh, my daddy wound. But like, it's for real. And um, I had resentment. Like once I came to know God uh, in college, I had all this resentment toward God because I was like, I have had this wound this whole time. And like, where were you? Like, where were all the other fathers that you're supposed to bring along to make up for that lack? And, and God has done that in some ways. But what God was doing, I recognized about four years ago when I met someone who's about 10 years younger than me. But he has a very similar father wound to me. About a dad that chose not to be present. And I recognize that God allowed that wound to continue to be very present in my soul because he was preparing me to be that person for my friend. That the wound itself was actually what made me particularly qualified to love him, not to be his dad, not to fix his wound, but to step in and say, what I always wanted somebody to do for me, I want to do that for you. And actually that relationship has been sweeter than I could possibly ever imagine a relationship being. And could it be that God is allowing you to sense your own woundedness because he is preparing you uniquely to see and move toward other people with wounds like yours? And what does it look like if you cover that wound up or act like it doesn't exist? What if he actually wants to use you to give someone else a taste of his love? Jesus loves you all the way down. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, um, Lord, I want that to be true. Um, And Lord, I need you by your spirit to teach me that that's true. That you take us to an acknowledgement of our failure. Lord, because you want to show us that you love us. Not just when we're amazing and beautiful, but when we're really yucky. 
And Jesus, I thank you that your love is actually powerful enough to do that. And I pray over my sisters and brothers here tonight, Lord Jesus, that you would show yourself to them in a unique and new and beautiful way. Jesus, you are love. Show that to us, we pray in your name. Amen. And we're going to stand and sing a song.